0: If you are able, please stand. Luke thirteen ten to 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Luke 14one 6 One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy.
1: Thank you, Martha and Randy. If you remember back at our 30th anniversary when we recognized all the people who have been at our church the longest, Randy and Martha, just about 30 years. So needless to say, they, they have uh, worked very hard for us and suffered much. And I know Randy suffers much being a board member because I'm in those meetings and I make him suffer much. So we thank God for you. So we find ourselves, once again, in a Gospel, a biography of Jesus, and right in the smack-dab in the middle of that. You remember back in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel that Jesus sets His face, sets His face on Jerusalem, uh, that He's on a mission, the mission that God had given to Him, as we've been singing about and thinking about this morning, to reconcile the world to God through His cross. And in the context of chapter 13, I think there's no way to really discuss our main text today without doing a quick reminder of what we talked about last week. The, the people, as Jesus is going, talk to him about instances of suffering. Uh, a universal uh, question, I think. If you're human, you have questions about suffering. And if, if you remember, they bring up this instance of Pilate the governor of Judea who slaughtered some innocent Galileans as they would bring sacrifices one instance a deliberate act of murder and secondly when a tower in Siloam uh, maybe a construction accident fell and crushed 18 people and if you remember Jesus says he's confronted with these real instances of suffering the world he doesn't kind of soften it or push it to the side but he he uses it as a teaching moment he says yes we all look out at the world and we see instances of suffering. And those should act to you as signposts to the way things really are. That there is a God who made the world good. That humanity and our rebellion have caused it to get all topsy-turvy. And so suffering should set off uh, a kind of alarm in my mind to say, I need to get right with my maker. And he tells that hard-hitting parable that, based, uh, verses 6 to 9 of chapter 13, he says there's not an infinite amount of time to repent that we think that way say well i'm i'm gonna die but not today or i can negotiate with god or i'm a pretty good person say no jesus is saying please when you look out at the world and you you smuggle in that ought things are not as they ought to be yes there's a maker and i need to be right with him through jesus today's the day will you turn to him and so to link that with today's passages both passages is we have two further instances of suffering don't we in the first, you'll notice, uh, chapter 13, verse 11, that as Jesus comes into the synagogue, we're told that there's a woman there who's hunched over. She's, she's bent over for 18 years. Now, this isn't just old age. You know, I tell people, say, I used to be 6 foot, but I think I'm about 5'10 since I had kids, it seems to happen. So it's not that, uh, not that kind of thing, but uh, a disability uh, that she's curved over and she's suffering. And then in chapter 14, similarly, he's at a dinner party, and there's a man there we're told who's got dropsy, a second individual. So not these bigger instances of suffering, but individual suffering. What's Jesus going to do? And instead of, you know, using it to tell a parable, that this is told both in the context of a confrontation with Jewish law. That at the heart of both 13:10 to 17 and 14:1 to 6 is this issue of the Sabbath. Uh, God's law of the Sabbath. How will Jesus navigate obedience to God's law and moving compassionately for those who are suffering? Now, they tell you when, when you first, uh, you know, are learning to teach and study the Bible, they say if something's repeated... You better pay attention. That means God really wants uh, us to think about it hard. And so Jesus' activity on the Sabbath would be one such instance in the Gospel of Luke. So we don't have to flip there, but Luke chapter 4, 31 to 39. Jesus in a little bit of a knotty a situation over the Sabbath, or naughty as it's presented. Of course, he navigates his way. Chapter 6, verse 1 to 11, same kind of thing. Both passages today, Jesus and the Sabbath. So we want to think hard. Why is God... Uh, bringing this up repeatedly about Jesus' attitude towards the Sabbath. So if I may, uh, chapter 13, verses 10 to 17, as we read that together, and if we had to, you can always do this on your own as good students of the Bible, say, let me just in a few words, let's see if we can get the pastoral point across. Say, why does God give us this? If I may, just take a stab at it. So bold heading number one, here's the point. This is Jesus' point. We ought to love people more than laws. We ought to love people more than laws. Or you might say maybe a better word than laws, say we ought to love people more than our systems. So let's capture this scene again. Here it is. It's Saturday. It's the Sabbath, isn't it? So here Jesus comes into the synagogue. There's a woman there. It's not stopped her from worshiping as she normally would. And Jesus observes her. And with one word, really so very easy for Jesus. How many times have we seen this? With one little word, he frees the woman of this disability, and she is straightened on the Sabbath. But there is the synagogue ruler who, no doubt, without uh, probably displaying lack of courage, does not confront Jesus directly, does not But he turns to the people and he says, do you see what this guy just did? He violated not just one of God's 613. He violated the fourth commandment that he did this on this day, clearly this Jesus is not in tune with God, that he's got to go, that he's a kind of heretic. So we need to review the fourth commandment. When we went through Exodus, this will sound familiar. Exodus 20 from verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, for in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the synagogue ruler, expert on the law, this is easy. Everybody knows the fourth commandment. And what does a good legalist do? Say so you read that definition, in Exodus 20, and your mind immediately goes to what? If God does not want me to work on the Sabbath, I better determine what work is. And that's exactly what the rabbis would do say, You go back to my office, I don't, rec- you know, if you have trouble sleeping, pull out the Mishnah many, many volumes of Jewish oral law. And what they, why, why, it, why it's hard to read is because it's laws to protect laws. I think that's a really good definition of legalism. Say, okay, here we've got the parameter. God doesn't want us to work, so what's work? Can I walk over there? Can I cook food? Um, you know, can I do any shopping? What, what, what exactly, where's that line? And so there's laws to protect laws. And before we say that that's absurd, I'd like to sympathize, really sympathize with that motivation. Because that motivation is, quite frankly, lost in modern America. I think the motivation there can be good. God means what he says. And I want to do what God says. And how I know I can do what God says is by creating these rules to protect the rules. So the motivation might be very good at first for a legalist, that they might really want to honor God. Nevertheless, that when that's the game, you really distort what God is doing when he gives us the gift of the law. So the ruler of the synagogue, noting that Jesus heals this woman, is outraged and espouses a position, we need to see this, he takes on the position we normally associate with religion. That most people say, oh, you're one of those people over there. I know what that's like. You say, there's a God up there who gives you a lot of rules, and he's just ready. The second one of those people go outside those boundaries, God's ready to crack down, and I don't know why anybody would just like to do that, you know, to follow the rules. So he absorbs um, the rule-based behavior modification approach to being right with God. And I think we do well. We take a step back. You'll notice this word in verse 14. It's It's a... hard word, isn't it? The ruler of the synagogue was indignant. He was furious. Now, take a step back. Why would he be mad? You think, here's a lady in your congregation. She's been suffering terribly. um, And she comes in like she does every other Saturday, every other Sabbath. And in one word, she's healed. Is this not an occasion for Universal celebration? I mean, why, why can't we get behind this? Why do you think? Why would he be so mad? And I suppose that the reason why this synagogue ruler is so mad is because when you set up systems and you're in control of the systems and the laws, when you realize that's not an ultimate thing, that you have to give up a little bit of your power and your control. So I think systems and laws, the reason why we gravitate towards them, the reason why we like to keep everybody kind of going, if we're calling the shots, then it allows me to be in power and in control and self-important. So you can picture him there, say all the sermons, all the sermons this lady had heard, all the maybe prayer services they did and she was still hunched over 18 years and now this Jesus strolls into town and Jesus with one word does what not one of my sermons could do in 18 years and so I think he rises up in a kind of self-importance Say, it's not about me anymore, and that's why he's so very mad. And if you think about it, say, how deeply ingrained is control and power? Say, we all know from world history, you know, how power likes to concentrate. Somebody taught me a long time ago, and I see it, I see it in my own heart. Most conflict, if you distill it down, say there's always presenting issues, but I think most conflict in life is really about control. It's really about who's calling the shots. And why that's important is because I love myself and I like to think of myself as important and I like to set up things that I can control and that I can move other people in the way that I want and then, you know, I get kind of validation. And I fear that we're a lot more like this synagogue ruler than we'd like to admit that somebody comes in, undermines his system, and he is indignant. Now, what about good laws? If I, if I may just give two examples here, what's a good law doing? You can take almost any good law and run it through this grid. I'll use one we're all gonna obey today. Hopefully, the speed limit on Detroit Road, 35, okay? So you could be the kind of person, you know, you see that 35, and you just think nothing beyond. The law says 35, and the point is to go 35, and and your analysis of the speed limit doesn't go beyond the bare letter of the law. It's 35, we go 35, that's the point. But we all know, say, why are there speed limits? Well, those who study these kinds of things have determined because of the kind of businesses on Detroit Road, because of uh, where houses are, where streetlights are, that it would not be wise to go 70 on Detroit Road. In other words, the speed limit, yes, the letter is, is 35, but the purpose of that law is to preserve life to make Avon a nice, safe place to live, you see? So there's always, in good laws, there's the letter of the law, and there's a wider purpose that opens us up to the real points, speed limit, to save life, to make it safe. So it is with God's law. You say, here's the law of God. Am I just focused on obeying the law? Rather to see, we all know what the law is really about, is to love my neighbor and to love God. God's laws are gifts that show us his character so that as I come under them, that they'll expose me for the sinner that I am and encourage me, hopefully, to love all of you and love him more. Another example, I think this is helpful. I need to do more reading on this. Just introduce to this distinction. Maybe it's helpful to you from a guy named Albert Walters in his book, Creation Regained. But he distinguishes between what he would call structures and directions, Structures and directions and he would say structures are inbuilt into God's creation They're good things that God set up say a moral economy or uh, you know God tells us who he is, is in his law Say so there are these basic frameworks for doing life and the problem is when human inter, you know human innovation gets involved and forces the structure of the laws to give a direction that it's never meant to give that laws we know do not empower, that it's kind of the same thing as the old, uh, you know, is ought fallacy. Just because you have something there does not necessarily tell you the ought, and we have to be careful when we have laws if we're getting the ought right. So the structure and the direction. So here we have an instance, the ruler of the synagogue is very comfortable in his structure. He's very comfortable with the letter of the law, and consequently, he's very mad when he sees Jesus uh, threatening his system, and, and Jesus rightfully would, again, go back to our main pastoral point. God's laws ought not prevent us from acting mercifully towards others. God's laws are not a barrier to showing love to fellow human beings, and Jesus will say this many times. So Matthew 22, 34, right? Well, what's all these, what are all these laws really about? Jesus says it's about loving God and loving your neighbor. Or how about this one, Mark two twenty seven? You remember when he, sa- he says, it, it wasn't that man was made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for the man. In other words, God did not impose the Sabbath in the created order to further enslave humanity. Say, now what I really need you to do is have more rules. And on Sunday, you better make sure you're obeying those rules. And I want you to be really anxious about obeying the Sabbath. And it's going to be a great burden to you. Say, no. The Sabbath is a good gift of God that was made for us so that we might know him and think about what really matters. And I hope that's what Sunday is. Say, well, we do obey the Sabbath by virtue of being here today. It's a time of reorienting. We got six days to have all this clutter coming in where we're kind of moved off kilter and we lose true north because hopefully we don't, but it's all coming out. And then we come back on the Sabbath and say, oh, I'm reoriented. I rest from those things. I think about loving God and loving my neighbor. That God's law comes as a gift. And Jesus reminds us of that. It's not a hindrance to doing good. Now, how about how Jesus does this? A few details in the story again. You'll notice, so verse 11, she, the curved-over lady has a disabling spirit. And then down in 16, we've got to talk about this. This woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound, Satan bound, we, I think, make a mistake if we say, well, does every person who has any kind of infirmity, particularly diabolical or under the influence of Satan, say, no, I don't, that, that would be a bad takeaway from this passage. Rather, what, what I think is said here is that in all the human maladies, which there are many human maladies, are not a part of God's original good design but are as a consequence of our rebellion and the agency that Satan has permitted to exercise during this point in God's redemptive history. So I'll say that again. It's not that people who have some kind of, you know, as we all will at some time, some kind of physical malady say, oh, there's a person who's particularly under the influence of demons. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that all of us at a point in time will have hardships in life and we view those hardships not as a part of God's original good design of creation, but rather as a consequence of the fall and the agency of Satan insofar as he's permitted by God to exercise some agency uh, for this point in redemption history. And so what Jesus does, I picture him there. I, I find this very, very moving. He sees, he sees the lady suffering it's not lost on him suffering lost on god i'm just down here going through all this he doesn't jesus sees and he knows and then again verse 12 he sees he calls my child you come to me you come to me and with one word he delivers friends every time jesus does a miracle like this there's always a wider spiritual lesson and i hope if you're a christian your testimony is not that much different. Jesus saw me down here with a disabled spirit because I loved myself. And he saw me in my need and in my squalor. And he called me, come, come! And he delivered me through the gospel, and one day will ultimately deliver every one of those of us who are his. You see how this happens on the Sabbath? You know, you read Hebrews 4, say what's What's there, say, salvation is compared to rest. So here we are on the Sabbath. We're all down here under the weight of sin and creation in its fallen condition. And Jesus on the Sabbath says, Come to me. I will deliver you ultimately into my Sabbath rest that you too can be saved. So this week, friends, looking down our prayer sheet, got cancers, blood disorders, trouble with transplants, infirmities, Sad things, even in our little congregation. Jesus says, I see you, I have compassion on you. Come to me, be saved, I'll deliver you. You're for my purposes here and now, but ultimately you'll enter my rest and I will make all things right. Just like our catechism said, right? That Jesus is setting the world right. So pastoral thrust of Luke 13, 10 to 17, what is it? We can't allow laws ever to get in the way of love and compassion and mercy. Or to put it differently, we ought to love people more than our systems. And we tend to love systems insofar as we can control them. So we love people, not systems. Okay, point number two, and this is really just pastoral application. I don't think we have, I hope if you're relatively new here, you don't feel any kind of legalism in our church. That's important. You know, How does a church feel? You feel you're being judged and it's about rules. So, but I, I think it's important to explore what happens when legalism invades a church. What happens if legalism, our systems or rules, would displace our compassion? What are the implications of that? So I just have four that we can go through. Firstly, legalism distorts the gospel insofar as it gets people thinking in terms of their own works rather than grace. So you know, you can imagine, So here we go, we got God's law, and, and it's Pastor Shaw's job to keep everybody kind of in the rails, and you better watch out, because he's going around, and I, you know, I keep my notes right here, and I just am I'm watching all of you, and say, so when, if that kind of feeling comes into a church that I've probably inadvertently communicated that uh, how we get right with God is about what I'm able to do. Uh, that I've, I've, I've got to get it right. And you say, that's not, the, the gospel is, is about, what, grace. It's the unmerited favor of God coming in from the outside. And so for one minute, if I think that I can, you know, come up to God by my good works, then I've really missed, I've missed everything of the good news of Jesus that I'm six feet under, so to speak. I got the dirt piled on top of me. So no amount of, of good works or getting it right or keeping the rules could ever extricate me from that predicament, but rather, God has quickened my heart and allowed me to live for him. So this is why Paul would say, got, you know, Second Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Of course it does. So if, if, if our faith is about obeying rules, it's enslaving, it's not life-giving, it's extremely tiring, that's why it kills. And so we don't want to keep the rules. And it spills in then to letter B. Very importantly, a legalistic spirit in the church will diminish our faith and place it among all the other world religions. So those of us interested in comparative religions, you say, well, it's, a, it's a, lots of religions out there. There is, but there's a really key distinction. You think about this, talk about it at your, your dinner table. All the other major religions world religions i think we can say all the other religions work on a very similar pattern it goes something like this if you keep the rules maybe at the end the good things you do will outweigh the bad so think you got the five pillars of islam right if you're a good muslim this is what you do and if you do those five pillars the way allah wants you to we'll see when you die Hinduism, right? You're doing the the polytheism, going to the temples, Buddhism, eliminating desires. They all kind of work on the way of saying, this is what I do, and if I put this stuff into the system, then what comes out at the other end is, is a pretty good shot. Totally different, as God has revealed to us. Could you, oh man, it would say, be so deceptive as to think that here I am in my rebellion... Die, you know, dead under six feet of dirt, as I said, way down, say, well, maybe if I hold the door a few more times for some of our older parishioners, and you know, maybe if I participate in a few more spaghetti dinners and exchange a few more, few more pleasantries and don't watch that show and watch the... You know, maybe then you know, God will just be happy. The Bible says, no, that I, deep down, who am I? I am a person who loves myself more than I love God and my neighbor and I can't will myself out of that predicament. And it's only by what God has done in Jesus, reaching down and pulling me out, the gracious condescension of God pulling me out. And I fear, friends, that our impulse, again, is to default into a kind of rules-based thing because then we can control it, we can contribute something to being right with God instead of resting in the truth of the gospel that I'm a sinner that God has redeemed at his initiative, at his great cost, and any good that I can contribute is a result of what he's done in my life. So legalism will diminish our faith and make it like other religions instead of the great truth. God has spoken into our lives, and as a result of what he's done, then we obey. So all of the world religions do the works. Maybe you get in. Bible says, no, you're in big trouble. Look at what God has done in Jesus. When he gives you a new heart, then you obey. It's a great truth. Thirdly, legalism inevitably expresses a lack of proportion. See, Jesus, when this happens, he uses both in chapter 13 and 14 a very simple one-liner to these opponents. He says, now you're mad at me for healing this woman with a word or healing the man with dropsy with a word, but don't all of you fellas, you know, on the Sabbath when your animal's in trouble, don't you take care of it? I mean if your ox needs water I mean you all give your ox water on Saturday otherwise you'd lose an important asset wouldn't you or if your ox falls into a pit do you just leave it there of course not it would be imperiled so of course all of you do that how much more important is a person and you can kind of when, G- when Jesus says this you 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 feel their absurdity they stand exposed that their legalism has come back upon them and you see how quickly this can happen. Think about that, say, if, my, if I had in the mindset what we're about here at Providence Church, what it means to be a good member of the church is me keeping everybody in line with, and I'd go around and I'd make sure you're all doing the rules right. If you watch me close enough, what, say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break those rules and probably do it more egregiously and that opens us up to that charge that's here, right? Legalism will always open us up to the charge of hypocrite. Verse 15, the Lord answered them, you hypocrites. You take care of an animal, but you don't take care of people. The best, uh, I think, dramatic depiction of the problem with legalism, if you'd spare me, just, you know, this is... Uh, the misfortune all of you have of having me as one of your pastors, but Shakespeare. Uh, Shakespeare and the Merchant of Venice, a fantastic uh, play. And if you remember, Shylock is the, the money lender and stands for the legalist. And he loans money to a man named Antonio. And Antonio has defaulted on his debts. And if you remember the contract, famously, so what does Shylock demand? Say, Antonio, if you default on your debts, it says right here in the letter of the law that I can extract from you a pound of flesh, you've heard that, right? A pound of flesh, to extract the heart. And so Shylock's really got him. He's saying, look, it's right here in the letter of the law, clean as can be, we gotta follow the law. And Portia, acting as a kind of defense attorney, right at the great climax of that theatrical production, says, ah, 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 Shylock. It does indeed say a pound of flesh is the repayment for a defaulted loan. But in the letter of the law, there's nothing about blood. And so if you can extract the pound of flesh out of Antonio without drawing a single drop of blood, then you, you can go to town. But of course, Shylock knew. The contract didn't say it. He's boxed in and the story ends in a kind of positive way. What's the point of that illustration? You say, when we play the legalistic game, when we say it's about the letter of the law, 35, 35, and not the bigger picture of loving God and loving, not the bigger picture of what's happening, we box ourselves in and we're exposed to charges of hypocrisy and uh, really our own demise. Lastly, this is very important. Many an American pastor scores points by bringing down thundering sermons against legalism. So, right, we've got Corinthians and Galatians in our Bibles. You know, we've got legalists and libertarians. Let's face it, the American church is way more inclined towards libertinism, that's doing what we want. And so when we hear, say, the three points of why we can't be legalists, everyone's saying, yes, yes, do whatever we want, I do what I want. Say, I I think that a legalistic spirit gets in the way of what we really ought to be talking about, which is godly obedience and living disciplined lives so legalism why does that cloud say if it's rules-based that clouds the conversation we really want to have is how we can encourage one another to grow in our faith and do what God calls us to do and the best analogy I have of of this point would be from uh, a parenting analogy so a book that's influenced many of us in this room called shepherding a child's heart maybe you've heard of it by Ted Tripp the point of the book and and it relates to this it says When you have a small child and you're trying to shape that child, you spend an exorbitant amount of of time with them correcting external behaviors, right? (laughs) Don't, stop, don't do do this, do that. You say it's a a lot of rules. And what Ted Tripp would say well, what does the Bible say about our anthropology? It says that behaviors come out, flow out of what's happening inside in the heart. That, uh, uh, you know, wanting to, act a certain way flows out of something deeper than external conformity to laws. And so it gets us thinking, say, I want to focus on the heart of the issue. And so I think the difference between legalistic rules to say, okay, I see in the Bible that we as a church family hold each other accountable, and I don't want to be a legalist. What's the difference? I, accountability has relationship at the center. It has a loving relationship that's concerned about one another's hearts before the Lord, that doesn't come across as a kind of policing of external behaviors, but rather is thinking about what it means to be a man or woman under Christ so that we can encourage each other to follow Jesus more. Put differently, I tried to find the provenance of this quote, but I I think Josh McDowell, but I've heard it years ago, rules without relationship equal rebellion. Have you heard that? Rules without a relationship lead to rebellion. So a lot of people say, if you've got a legalistic spirit in the church, say, no thanks, that's not for me. I'm not, you know, we've fallen right into the trap of you know what religion means, losing the distinctiveness of the gospel and grace, and we don't have relationships, there's not a real concern for the heart, and we blur godly obedience and legalism. So in this sense, church, I hope, keep... Keep doing what you're doing. I, I pray you don't feel legalism here. I feel that God's grace, God's grace is the theme. Say, we're all sinners. We need his help. He reached down and rescued us. Let's encourage one another to a, a, to a real obedience, a real following of him. Let's have spiritual formation so we're, we're true and committed Christians. So two points then. We ought to love people more than our systems. That we should do our best to keep grace at the center of what it means to be a church rather than external conformity to laws because that distorts the thing that we boast in. We boast in what God has done, not what we can do. So this brings me finally to the two reactions, the two reactions to this instance. And um, firstly, I think verse 14 that people hear about Jesus and what he's done, and they become very mad, like this synagogue ruler. They're angry. For all the talk about how Christianity following Jesus is irrelevant, um, that it's a thing of the past, that nobody cares about it anymore, I I want to say, well, people sure get very mad about Jesus and very mad at Christians. You notice that? Why do people get so mad about Jesus? and about his followers. And I can only surmise from my own biography that the reason why Jesus can provoke a response of indignant anger is because if this is true, and of course the members of this church believe this is true, but if Jesus walked into the synagogue that day and he saw this hunched over woman for 18 years and with one little word he said, Be healed as he's done many times in this book, then he's king and savior and Lord. And there is but one response. And that response, friends, I'm gonna say what is a very dirty word. Now, don't get too excited, but it is a dirty word in our culture. This means that I have to submit to Jesus. And that's a very hard thing to do in our flesh. And that, I think, is why so many people get mad, because if this is true, then Jesus demands all of me I tried for years to do the kind of soft, you know, one foot in, one foot out. Jesus, good guy, want him. But say, if this is true, then he's king and savior and Lord. And I hope if you're not a Christian here today that you don't allow a young pastor or uh, my own limitations uh, get in the way. But rather you would see Jesus for who he is. He sees you. He calls you. He'll deliver you into his rest. Will you join the people of God? Will you turn to him today and not be mad and not allow any of your flesh to be in the way? And Christian, our response, like the lady and like the crowd, verse 13, what does she do? When God, through Jesus, delivers her, she glorifies him. And verse 17, the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. The proper response of the church is to say we God has seen us in our rebellion, he has called us, he has given us a new heart that he's delivered us and ultimately will deliver us to his kingdom of rest where all human infirmities will be removed, every tear dried and every wound healed. And that is why now we close our service with a great hymn of adoration, glorifying God, rejoicing in what he's done, delighting in his grace and the true uniqueness of the gospel. So I'll pray and the team will come up. Father, we thank you for these two instances of Jesus showing us that compassion is the point of the law. The laws aren't there to keep people in bounds or to create our own power structures, but rather to steer us to see who you are and who we are as fellow human beings. So may we be a compassionate bunch. May those who walk in for the first time not feel a spirit of judgmentalism or rule-keeping, but rather to say that we are sinners redeemed by the grace of God, and because we have a real apprehension of what Christ has done for us, that we are keen to obey and to be disciplined for the sake of the gospel. Help us to see that this is much different than any other world system. And in that, that we boast not of ourselves, but of what you've done for us. So Lord, help us to, again, rejoice, to glorify in you. And may we be representatives of you for the short time we have to be a local church. May Christ be lifted high. Amen.